0: This is Software Defined Survival, where we explore how software-defined systems are changing the business of AVIT. Today on Software Defined Survival.
1: How fast can you launch a minimum viable product and see whether your assumptions are right? So you can see what one of the leaders in AI services can, can know about your stuff just by submitting it to them. But more importantly, you actually own the results that come back. He told me in, I think, 2009, he said, you know, if we're not mobile cloud native, in a few years, we're absolutely dead.
0: Greetings, my name is Patrick Murray, and today's guest is a photographer and author of The Dam Book, or Digital Asset Management. He's currently the acting director of digital strategy at History Factory, where he integrates storytelling, web-based media publishing, and digital preservation into a seamless user experience. And I'm really looking forward to hearing more about how he uses technology to Tell stories and preserve the past. Peter Krogh, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hey, thanks, Patrick. Really uh, happy to be here with you.
0: Yes, it's nice to have you on the show. Is there anything about that introduction you'd like to correct or expand upon?
1: No, I think I think you're uh, you're right on the money. Uh, as as we've been discussing, my uh, portfolio is a pretty broad one over the last uh, fifteen years, um, thirty five years as professional photographer and, and as everybody in visual media business knows, things have changed a little bit over the last, uh, couple of decades. And, um, and I've, I've really been in a really interesting place working with people who help build the technology and to be kind of at the, the tip of the spear, at least from the, uh, still photo media, um, of course, everything's now converging. So there's kind of no such thing as just a still photo anymore.
0: Yeah, we've got all of these different kinds of industries kind of converging on each other. There used to be a lot more separation between what a still picture and what a video was. And now a video can become a picture and the other way around. Can we kind of start at the present and maybe work our way back? Tell us a little bit about what you do. What is digital preservation?
1: Well, um, I, you know, actually this is a fairly new position and, um, where we're just, uh, figuring out what the business unit that I'm working on is, is going to really look like, but that, you know, basically what the, the mission of this company, um, is to, uh, is to preserve the, the past, um, the culture of an organization, and be able to uh, make it accessible to stakeholders, internal and external. You know, a lot of times the reputation of the company is is the most valuable asset, and a lot of the corporate clients um, are, say, financial institutions, and and that that's the 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 history of that institution is is more tangible than you know, say. General Motors could show you all the cars that they've made over the years um, so so preserving the corporate culture becomes a really important um, from just a uh, corporate valuation and and monetization standpoint marketing standpoint but but also it's an important thing um, The thing that I'm finding here is that HR is is hugely interested in this because they want to preserve culture as well and 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 visual media and connected media, connected objects, the data that can be mined from archives can help inform what an institution is.
0: Can you give me some practical examples about how visual media can really help there? It,
1: they, the uh, institutional historian, you know, this is a, this is a practice. You can go get a master's degree in this and it, it, uh, um, has, has a body of knowledge and a body of practice that, that goes back actually hundreds of years. And, um, so that's great, but as with so many of the, uh, you know, the, the way we communicate and the way we run our businesses, everything has, has changed to this new, um, digital based, um, experience and, and really the, preservation rules for this have not been invented yet at all. So this is definitely, you know, building the airplane as we're flying it. Um, there's there's some really wonderful work that's being done by people in the Library of Congress, uh, National Archives, and I've been fortunate to be involved with, with those groups over the years. And um, they're thinking about how do we actually preserve uh, and make sense of stuff that, that is, you know, is very ephemeral, and built upon connectivity that's very brittle. So when you have something up on the web that is, um, uh, the the understanding of it is informed by the connections between a photograph uh, or between uh, a video or a piece of text. Um, how do we preserve that information and keep the context moving into the future? And and it's a you know it's it's a tough problem. You we can see organizations like the Internet Archive that are working on this. There's a, there's been a bunch of big projects to archive tweets, for instance. And you know there's a, there's a perfect example of of sort of multi-threaded, multi-connected um objects and you can think of each tweet as a media object you know how how do we preserve this and make it usable 10 15 20 100 years into the future um, and and the as everything essentially becomes software which is kind of the direction we're headed um, and it becomes internet interconnected software uh, talking to each other by APIs, this is becoming an even even more difficult and interesting problem.
0: Fascinating. As you were talking about that, about this interconnectedness and and context understanding comes from context. Now, I learned a foreign language at the uh, old age of thirty, which was a real challenge, and. Um, Context means everything even with a spoken language when you're in the same room communicating with one other person dealing with something in the digital realm where as you said there's so many different connections so many different ways to connect um, yeah that must be an extremely large challenge what are some ways some methods that um that people could begin to grasp
1: okay more? yeah uh, great great question let's go come down to earth a little bit uh, so um, let's take an, a, a concrete example uh, a few short years ago, you know eight or eight or ten years ago, if you were building a media collection of photographs, um, there was a a pretty well established set of standards that were published by uh, IPTC and a handful of other uh, schemas that were that were created that would let you describe your um, your visual media you know who owns it what was it made with um, uh, what is the subject matter what what's the location shown in the photograph and and, and the the process of, of uh, describing and, and adding information was one that could basically be seen as we're going to stuff a bunch of information, you know, into the file header here, and that's kind of what we need to do. You know, maybe we'll stuff a usage right statement in there and and uh, you know some tags for for keywords and people and location and and we're good and we can build whole media collections in that way. Mm-hmm. But um, in the current world, it it turns out that that's simply not possible um and it, it does go to context and meaning um so context is always external to the object that's the very definition of context um and and so the um it, you you can't put all the context in you can put some identifiers and some linkages in there um, But it gets even harder when you talk about meaning, which is more important, and and meaning is always subjective. Meaning is how does the person who is visualizing this um, understand it? And so let's take a location tag from the old school method, 7205 Honeywell Lane, uh, Bethesda, Maryland. The uh, defines a location on a map, Uh, it's a very specific place. Um, it happens to be the the house that I grew up in, um, from, a from the old school, let's put some data in there. Well, that, that tells me where it was taken, but what it doesn't do is give me any, any context or, uh, about what's happened at that property. And the way we all think these days, the way we use visual media is that we, when we see a photo, we expect to be able to place it on a map and give us. Give us that context of um, where was this? You know, what's what are the what's the surrounding area? And so that becomes essential to the. You know, it's just become sort of background capability we all expect to be attached to visual media, but but even more so to dive into the level of meaning. Um, meaning has to understand that not only this is a house in Bethesda, Maryland, but um, to me, this is the house that I grew up in and lived in, you know, until I was 18 and, and that my parents lived in until they you know, moved out a few years ago. And, and so that in order to attach the meaning to the image, you have to understand who the viewer is and we're used to this with Google and we're used to this with Facebook um where they know something about you Uh so your entry into the visual media collection is is informed by uh information that has been gathered about you that is being used to filter and um and and be displayed when you're looking at the media
0: that's a great explanation. Thanks for that. I really appreciate it because when you were talking about context and, and meaning being subjective, it it almost sounded like we were going to veer off in the realm of, of art and creativity. But with that spin of knowing the user, that's how you could give it meaning. Then um, it, it changes into something real for whoever's viewing it. And of course, software and all the data being collected about, about an individual um, allows you to curate. What they see um, based on their interests—fascinating stuff.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, and programmatic curation is a—you know—that's where I think the the whole next level of um, of value is. And you know, right now, essentially, we only see it in these big services, and we're seeing it in in services where your participation in the service requires. That you license uh, irrevocably to that service, what what I think is going to be seen and uh, is seen in some quarters and will increasingly be seen as a you know unacceptably large amount of information that you agree to give to them forever to do with whatever they want, and you know this is a thing in an in, in an institutional collection where you may not necessarily want to give Facebook the entire history of your company to sell and deploy uh, and possibly weaponize against you. Um, and so we, one, of the, one of the opportunities I think that's out there um, is, is to create um, contextual and, and meaning informed frameworks. That can be applied on top of media collections programmatically, uh, using artificial intelligence tools, m- machine learning tools, but deployed in the service of the of the collection owner, rather than in um, in the you know in the service of this you know tech behemoth that doesn't necessarily have your best interest at heart.
0: Fascinating. I I need to break that down a little to make sure I, I have a halfway understanding of it. This, this framework sounds, yeah, it sounds like a really interesting idea. So let's just say you're walking through a museum and there's images. And when you walk in, maybe you log in somehow. And I don't know, perhaps you have VR goggles or there's some way that you get to alter the images or just show different uh, digital images on a video display. So you're logged in, your data is the the system is now aware of who you are and what your preferences are. And whoever owns the, uh, the assets also has their preferences for how they want to be presented. And then an artificial intelligence takes all of that and, and gives you a unique show in in basically the same exact space. Two people would see perhaps quite different things.
1: So, so that could be uh, certainly a, some kind of a manifestation. I'm, I'm thinking more on a, architectural standpoint of, of management of the objects. So if we think about, um, the fact that we have this massive number of, um, of photographs and videos, uh, and other visual media that's being created now, now depth aware imaging, you know, the next billion iPhones will be shooting 3d pictures. Um, there's a, there's an inherent value to this stuff that we don't you know we can't even conceive of it's it's you know building a four-dimensional record of time and right now we don't have good capability to preserve and understand these things um, other than by giving them to facebook and instagram um and you know maybe google and and so uh, I would I would say that the the framework that can be on top of that is something that there, there's a there's levels of of what computer assisted curation can do, and you know some of it's just like, hey, I know whose phone shot this picture, so I know this is probably relevant to them, um, and. And that can be a way to to mine through uh, collections, but you could also, um, for instance, if you if you allowed your calendar to be attached to a media object collection, you could your you know your phone <laughs> through your calendar knows a tremendous amount about you, who you talk to, what you do, where you go, and and again, if that information can be attached to a media collection in a way that that is uh, privately held and deployable by by the owner of the the objects rather than by the tech behemoth, does that help? Yeah.
0: Have- yeah, absolutely. Um, I think going forward uh as a culture as as a, a race um we need to make a lot of decisions about how uh yeah how our data is handled because basically the data is us it's how we view the world it's 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 our personality it it holds so much information about us and what you're describing there needs to be some kind of mechanism which people kind of take for granted today because it's only in the hands of a few large companies, like you said, but it could provide real value to a person in in smaller environments, but, but getting access to that data could be, um, yeah, a real legal challenge, of course, but also a cultural decision to make. What, what kind of ideas do you have? I don't know, moving forward.
1: Yeah. So, um, so one of the things that's happened, um, you know, last year, was the commoditization of machine learning and artificial intelligence services? Um, there's a extremely robust competition uh, among you know, Google, Amazon Recognition, Microsoft Cognitive, um, uh, Clarify, and and a host of startups that that have um, API driven um, machine or machine uh, object recognition ability to add information to images inside your collection. Um, So you don't have to give it to them in order to take advantage of these services. And the implications of that are that if you, and I'm really more here talking about institutions than individuals because uh, I mean it's it's a very different problem um, yeah. but but uh, you know companies and institutions that um, that have media that's created, say, by employees or stakeholders um, that they need to gather and make sense of. you can now send this stuff out through. Um, these AI services for uh, uh, Google right now, I think it's on the on the sort of individual account, it's 0.15 cents per API call. So you know, seven API calls for a penny. And it can tag, it can read visible text, it can translate visible text into multiple different languages. It can find not safe for web content and you know, all of these services basically are doing the same thing and it's getting cheaper and faster and much more capable. And so for, for uh, an example, if somebody wants to just see this themselves and, and it's not, uh, one of the, one of the things I found recently that I really like is, is a way that, that, uh, anybody with, you know, 20 bucks could go throw, um, tens of thousands of pictures up against Google's API and see what comes back. See what the, see what the, uh, the Google can do for you. Um, and it's, uh, there's a program called Adobe Lightroom, which is a very popular program for building and managing photo collections. And a guy named John Ellis uh has has created a plugin that's I think a $20 plugin uh, that hooks onto the Google Cloud Vision API. And it lets you submit images and then it returns results and it applies them to the images in the Lightroom catalog. Um, so you can see what one of the leaders in AI services can can know about your stuff just by submitting it to them. But more importantly, you actually own the results that come back
0: okay.
1: in your possession. Google can't change them or take them back. They are, you know, it is it is expressed in the form of, of concrete metadata that can be applied to the files um, and and so th- that's a it's a great way for someone who's never tried to, who's never um, put a bunch of visual media through an AI service. It's a great way to do that and and see what works and see what doesn't you know I like to say that these services are like they're like an intelligent uh, eight year old and um, but they're getting smarter every year of course and you know they're an eight year old who like really knows his dinosaurs, (laughs) (laughs) right? Or, or actually, you know, one of the things that was fascinating to me was I, my grandparents had taken an around the world trip. I had no idea where it was. It was all slides from the sixties. We scanned it and Google was able to name the, you know, the specific temples and the um, specific buildings all over the world and put geolocation on it. And I could, could, um, forensically, follow my grandparents' travel around the world that happened in like 1964.
0: That's great stuff. That is really amazing. At the end of the podcast, I usually ask for advice on what someone could do to get started right away, but you've already covered that, and uh, that's something I'll be looking into quite soon because it just sounds like something fun to do. And I think once you get started with um, very simple activities that you get a result and you can see the result from, then the idea really start to come and and the different applications, uh, come out. Are there any other applications that, um, that you'd like to talk about?
1: Um, well, yeah, we, we we went straight to the, uh, here's how to deploy some AI for for your own, you know, for your own edification. Um, I mean, I, I personally am a, a huge, uh, fan of the Adobe products. Um, and, and, you know that's been a really interesting uh, interesting company to watch
0: so I think this kind of leads right into it listening to what you were saying anybody could get started pretty quickly but um, the question is always how do I apply these things and you know can I make a business out of it does yeah. it make sense to pursue what are your thoughts on that
1: well um, yeah I'll say well I'll say I'll say this about the the business part of it is that um, you know, this is all a very green field. There is, um, and and while we've gotten to this point now, where uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning have become a commodity, the businesses there there's kind of two methodologies that I outline in my book that that you can use to attack this one is is kind of the black box i'm going to put everything in here i'm going to let the service just do its thing and and you know that's for many people that's kind of the best thing for their personal photos you're you're giving your life to, you know life information to these companies but most people don't have the wherewithal to to try and uh, figure out how to do it yourself um the other the other way is to Get a connectable service and and evaluate different services and see how uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence can help with human assisted curation. I believe that's going to be absolutely huge and essential for um, corporate uh, institutions and and there it is there's just not that many people doing it there's you know almost nobody who's really doing that right now uh, in a in a capacity of an owned collection for for the institution so if you wanted to make a business out of it learning how that works and then and then uh, seeing where you can do that for companies I think is an is an excellent sort of direction to point in there's going to be a lot of sub uh uh you know a lot of a lot of little little alleyways and and side streets that you can turn off into but but the commoditization of ai is is a huge development
0: wow thanks for that um you mentioned your book and i, I mentioned it at the beginning it's called digital asset management but it sounds like uh there's a lot more to it than the title suggests
1: Sure. So the, the first version of the book was published by O'Reilly in 2005, and it was really the, the kind of, the well, it was the first book as, that, that I know of, and I, I know that subject, um, that described uh, a unified ecosystem <clears throat> for the building and management of digital photo collections. And that was everything from how do you store it, how do you name it, how do you tag it? How do you back it up? Um, how do you deploy it? How do you make workflow? And, and then, uh, there's the book is now in its third version, uh, which, which includes, um, uh, how do we incorporate artificial intelligence and cloud services? And how do we, how do we understand that? How do we understand the integration between services? Um, how do we understand what APIs, um, can do or uh, media collection um, and and again how do we how do we understand this in the entire context so it's a it's pretty ambitious it's it's pretty forward-looking um, although very um, very grounded in in things that we can observe right now in terms of the, the services that are available right now
0: so i understand that the end game right cloud the the state of where we are today has changed, but how about the input i I'm, I'm guessing that maybe in the first version it was it was more um talking about photography and does video and audio and and other types of assets does that play more of a role
1: yeah so in the in the more most recent book um while the the format discussion is primarily still photos um, and uh, the metadata discussion is primarily still photos and and mostly that's because the formats and metadata in in video is such the wild west you know there really isn't a unified methodology that is is similar to what's available with still photos Um, the The discussion of the collection and preservation of media objects essentially becomes um, more ecumenical and more, you know, um, all media objects sort of have mm-hmm. this need, you know, there's, and then project-based workflow is a thing that's in the, um, in the new book that was not in previous books. And so that, you know, the project-based workflow is, is largely was largely driven by both the design workflow and the video editing workflow. Um, that's a that's a thing that has now you know converged into how you you know deal with with the things you need to make from still images uh, is is very often, needs to be seen and understood and, and workflow needs to be based on, on the project concept, which is very familiar in video.
0: Okay. Thanks for that. Um, are you working on anything interesting you'd like to share with us? <laughs>
1: um, uh, well, uh, the, it's a, the interesting thing right now is, is this work at the history factory to, to figure out what the digital, um what does, digital preservation and collection management look like and deployment look like uh, building on top of of both the archive that they have there and the, the agency work. And that's that's a, uh, a broad and multifaceted project. Um, uh, I'm hoping to go back to South by Southwest. Uh, a lot of the stuff that I talk about is is stuff that I have spoken about at South by Southwest four or five times, um, and it's a it's a wonderful place to go uh, see what's happening in the world of media and technology. Um, I I strongly recommend it for anybody who's who's trying to explore these fields. Um, but no, it's it's you know it's continuing work, uh, continuing work to to. Um, add AI services, uh, we're, we're doing some very large scanning projects here too. My wife, uh, uh, who works with me on the publishing and is really excited by the idea of, of scanning large collections. So we, you know, we're, we've come to this time where there's this massive need to digitize uh, visual media before it all you know, ends up in landfills. Uh, or decays away, um, and that's that's an important mission of mine as well. Is is this preservation in digital form of the visual history?
0: So, at the beginning of something new, especially when you're working with relatively new technologies, even if they are commoditized, there's a need there. You could you could see and feel the need. You have the tools to do the job, but the end game may not be exactly clear. Um, can you talk a little more about this innovator's dilemma?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, well, innovator's dilemma is a really specific thing. Um, and that's uh, th- that's a, um, a situation where somebody becomes a market leader. And um, you think you're in the business of selling that thing that that led the market instead of maybe solving the problem that people had with it. So for Uh Adobe, uh, that was, uh, Photoshop and Photoshop became a verb and it became, you know, the market behemoth for image editing. And one of the things that, that happened is then the world changes around you and you, uh, you can think that, you know, Adobe could think there that they're in the Photoshop business when in fact they're in the you know, visual media business. And one of the things they did was then they, they set up their own internal team to, to build the Photoshop killer, which was uh, Lightroom. And it was, you know, it's like, well, if we were going to build Photoshop from scratch here, 10 years or 15 years after Photoshop already exists, how would we do it? and And let's put some smart people on it and give them some money and some time and see what they can do um it's the exact opposite of of the xerox park story which uh, you know that story yeah sure that, yeah that where they thought they were in the copier business and and then when their their people at xerox park the palo alto research center developed ethernet laser printers scalable type they were like holy crap this is going to kill our copier business <laughs> let's get rid of these people um two of those people were getchy and warnock who went and founded adobe and uh, they brought the scalable type Adobe type manager um, out of Xerox Park and made a product out of it. And, and we've seen what Adobe's done in reinventing itself um, as a cloud native software. Um, as a, you know, I look at that and see just an unbelievable reinvention of something that was really huge and it's been really successful. So the one of the head um, head of engineering who I traveled to Tasmania with told me in I think 2009, he said, you know, if we're not mobile cloud native in a few years, we're absolutely dead. Hmm. And I was like, what are you talking about phones? You know, it's a crappy little camera and and he was absolutely right. And what uh what Winston Hendrickson did leading that team um was pretty remarkable to to uh you know, they went from a company whose business was was uh based on on eighteen month serial box drops of uh software
0: yeah.
1: to uh subscription based software and took You know, pretty much their entire user base, and then expanded that user base, and did that switchovers. Just remarkable, and they could have easily thought of themselves as you know in the Photoshop business, and no, we're just going to protect this at all costs. Um, And it, you know, it's there's a there's a need to both um, stick to a plan. When, when it's the right thing to do and to know when to change the plan. And as you, you know, as your question was, was what do we, what do, we do when we're building stuff, you know, we're building the plane as we're flying it. Um, that's, you know, that's the art right there. It's like, where do you, where do you stick with it and where do you change? And, and what's, what's the use case? What's the value proposition? And you have to be ruthless uh, in asking that question. You have to be willing to, to change course, but you also have to not do that every day. Um, so it's, you know, I, I don't know, somebody's probably written a great book on that. Um, the, the one, actually the, the one that I love is uh, The Lean Startup. And, and it, um, it has this uh, concept of build, test, and learn, rapid iteration. Uh, and it, it lets you validate, the, the process is to validate your assumptions. Like, hey, somebody will pay for this thing <laughs> might be one, or this solves a need for somebody. And instead of the old development, which was like, okay, we're gonna work for a couple of years, and then we're gonna drop this software um or, or launch this service you know how fast can you launch a minimum viable product and see whether your assumptions are right and and in a changing world I think that's essential you have to you have to start by validating your assumption that you know this is a thing of value and people want this um, and and another another one is uh, crossing the chasm. Is another. It's both you know both of these are are old books, but they they've proven to be um, really valuable in in understanding how you bring new technology to market. How do you find the customers who are willing to pay for it? How do you solve a specific service? How do you not try and drink the ocean all in one gulp? And and you can you know you can look at. Different services um, and different markets, and see different value. So, where I was before at uh, at Photo Shelter, building Libris, one of the um, thing, one of the the ways that we could evaluate customers was, you know, do they value their photos and visual media? Do they have photographers on staff um, who would understand this system and and know how to make it work and it turned out in both sports and universities those those institutions fit that um fit that profile and so the marketing for sports teams you know they have more than half the nfl um they have major league baseball and a whole bunch of other um important sports organizations as well as a ton of universities because they fit that profile. And so, so, you know, we test marketed the, the product in that space and then built to that space. The rambling answer, but.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, great stuff. Um, I've got a page full of notes here. Uh, I've got all sorts of thoughts going on while you're explaining things. Just really quickly, this one thought came in my head. It's what when when a business is starting out, you're like you described. You're trying so hard to figure out what you don't know, right? You don't know anything really. What the customer wants, maybe even who the customer is. And you talked about companies becoming a verb, and once you get there, right, the tendency is to want to hold on to it for as yeah. long as possible, and being able to make that shift to um, to to completely change with the world as it moves around you is difficult in and of itself. But now that everything is becoming software and you could push an update every day if you wanted to, do you see that dynamic being different? Are we going to be constantly changing and updating our products? Or is there still a bit of that um, finding what your core, what really defines you and, and sticking with it? How do those relate to each other in this?
1: Yeah, I think that, I mean, that's, that is really the interesting challenge that you've, you've outlined right there, which is, um, uh, if you sell something, uh, sell a service, cause kind of everything's now a service. <laughs> um, uh, even if it's a software, even if it's software and everything's software, even if it's a service, um, so figure out what you're doing, uh, and then, um, distill that down to understand what your value proposition is, but also to understand what adjacent value propositions are. So if you're, um, uh, you know, if you're a photographer and you're doing original creative work for somebody, you may think of yourself as a photographer, but really the service you're providing is, is interpretation and, and, and creation of uh, visual communication, then as, you know, we, we saw this in the film world, it's, you know, this change, it's like I'm no longer delivering transparencies. Like my head's exploding because this thing, this skill that I developed and thought was, you know, what my business was and well, no, it's, it's about visual, visual interpretation of what the client needs to communicate and then, and then creation of that. Well, okay, well that step to digital, not that big a deal, but, but now as visual media has become more complex, we need to think about adding those services on. And, and so it's, um, it's understanding what the, um, what the value proposition is and what the, how you can roll with the punches. Um, I think a side component, particularly you know, relevant to this podcast, is is the understanding that that everything seems to be moving towards software as a service and services integrated by API and and microservices and service oriented architecture. You know, so it's it's not one big piece of software that does everything. It's lots of little pieces of software. You know, so. Dropbox can hook on to many different um, applications or, or Slack can, can take text messages and, and again, hook on to many different applications. And, and the, the, the rapid rise of this kind of bolt-together technologies that are connecting by API, it's a it's a weird double-edged sword because what it's doing is it's accelerating capabilities at an incredible rate. But it is also making things kind of brittle. And, um, you know, if a company decides, you know, Google's notorious for, oh, yeah, we're going to kill that project. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, sorry you built your business on it. Um, you You really do need to you need to uh, be defensive or it, you need to understand how it works because um, it's very difficult to to build new businesses and without using some kind of service oriented architecture without, without using this bolt together technology, mm-hmm. but you are at the whim, you know, you are, you are exposed to problems that can happen when when a company decides that they're gonna pivot. You have to think about, you know, maturity models in companies. And um, you know, does this look like a thing that makes long-term sense for this company to be doing? Or, you know, there's a ton of beautiful new web services that, that have cool media functionality. And a lot of them are startups and a lot of them are, you know, either going to pivot or go out of business. And and there's there's just no way right now to build long-term value without having a good understanding of uh, maturity models and, and whether this appears to be a, a business proposition that makes sense.
0: Great stuff, you've given me a whole lot to think about. Um, If anybody would like to get in touch with you or grab your book, how would they go about doing
1: that? Um, So, thedamnbook.com, and that's D-A-M, thedamnbook.com, is uh, the way to find uh, my books. We have um, uh, four current books uh, up on the site. Um, And, uh, you can find me at peter at petercrog.com if you want to email me.
0: Excellent. Peter, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks, Patrick. If you or anyone on your staff ever considered themselves just an AV programmer, join the club. That's how I used to feel. I was just an AMX programmer or just a Crestron programmer. Whatever language of your choice is, whatever it may be, there's generally this feeling in AV that... We're not capable of using modern programming languages, and it simply isn't true. Sure, there's a learning curve, but once you get through it, all other languages become easier to learn, and it just expands the amount of options you have when designing a system. It's not an either-or decision. You don't say, I won't be using these manufacturer tools anymore. It's just you have a broader palette to choose from. And here's what Mark Day, founder of IdeaBox, had to say about his experience with the
2: online courses at LearnAVProgramming.com. You know, Patrick, it's funny how the smallest things can sometimes be the start of really big ideas. Uh, before I took the LearnAVProgramming.com courses, I was in that proprietary I'm only a control system programmer kind of mindset right Uh, when it came to new technologies or current technologies like JavaScript or or things like that for some reason I thought that was different from what I'm doing and what taking your courses flipped for me was not so much what I learned technically taking the courses it was the mindset of oh wait a second I'm already doing 99% of what some of these most modern programmers are doing, I just have to learn, uh, you know, the other one percent, and that's really what I did. So it's really been kind of a big change after taking the course. Um, and I would really recommend this course to any integrator. Not only will it obviously help their skill set, but more importantly, it might change their whole mindset. Uh, which is more important and and really show them new opportunities, open the door so they kind of see problems through a different lens. Uh, I got to tell you, one of the the biggest changes for me was as soon as I taught myself HTML, CSS, JavaScript, and saw the UIs that I can make with those technologies, I I, I just couldn't sell a uh, Crestron touch panel again.
0: Mark is a great example of somebody who takes new information and really applies it. I know that Mark still sells a lot of Crestron equipment, but for him, for his company, for his customers, for his business, he needed a better UI. He needed another option for a user interface, and modern programming allowed him to do that. So the question is, how can you use modern programming to improve your business? please go to learnavprogramming.com and wherever you see a sign up button, go ahead and sign up and you'll get some free information to get a feel of my learning style and what kind of information is available. And of course, it would be an honor to have you enroll in one of our courses and help you upgrade your skills and take this industry to the next level. Thanks for listening to Software Defined Survival. I hope you found it useful and maybe it inspires you to try out something new this week. If you have any questions, Go to softwaredefinedsurvival.com and click the appropriate button. I'd love to answer your questions on the air. And if you'd like to help spread the word,
1: please subscribe, comment, and share it with your friends. Thanks.